ultimately, I think, to just put it quite uh, sort of plainly, black folks have to get on about the business of living. Yes. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. <laughs> <but> yes. <laughs> left of philosophy. I'm Lillian and here with me today is Gil, Will, and Owen. Hey guys. Hey. Hey everybody. Hello. And today we're also joined by Dr. Melvin Rogers, who is an associate professor of political science at Brown University. Welcome to the podcast, Melvin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Melvin has a forthcoming book coming out called The Darkened Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thought. We read the introduction of that today for our episode, so we'll get into some discussion about that. And his first book was also called The Undiscovered Dewey Religion, Morality, and the Ethos of Democracy. So um, I think the ethos of democracy and the kind of character we need to have is going to be a theme that we talk about. Um, But before we get to that... I'd like to dedicate this episode of What's Left of Philosophy to Charles Mills, who passed away earlier this week. Our heart goes out to his loved ones, including his colleagues and students who considered him a friend, mentor, and inspiration. We've all been inspired by his moral clarity, courage, and willingness to take the road less traveled in philosophy. Today's discussion is likely to be, in many ways, a testament to his life and career, which was about racial justice, equality, and imagining a democratic future without giving into despair. So with that, I'll say something about what we read from Melvin, and then I'll kick it over to everybody else. In his forthcoming book, he talks about having an ethical account of democracy, and he's pulling this account of democracy out of a series of black political thinkers, both um, people who write fiction and social and political essays, as well as philosophers, um, public speakers, essayists. And um, it's reviving a strain of perfectionism in black American political thought by way of pulling on, I think, various pragmatist and Republican threads in this tradition. And something that stands out to me about the way that these themes have been pulled out is that how American these two sources are, the pragmatism and the republicanism. It's in company of people like Frederick Douglass and John Dewey. And one big theme is talking about the moral character of the society in which we live, how these structures that um, constrain us and enable us shape our virtue, our sentiments, and why those can be and usually are and have been bad, but how to shape them against the odds for a freer and more democratic future. And I think this is a really interesting theme, um, kind of bringing out the kind of conversation about virtue and ethics, because in the liberal tradition, people tend to be pretty skeptical of this part of um, the history of political thought and republicanism, like the idea that moral perfectionism is likely to be patronizing or somehow like is going to require great leaders or is not actually going to allow for moral pluralism. So I think this is an interesting way to revive some of those ideas. And the other thing that makes it interesting is that it's in contrast to narratives that have become increasingly more influential and even kind of common sense in the American public sphere, like Afro-pessimism, and Melvin frames part of what he's doing as um, something of a a contrast to that, maybe a debate, um, which tends to, in that tradition, tends to emphasize the impossibility of just those things, like transforming the sentiments of the society to be something more um, democratic and just. And the last thing that I, I thought was important was the idea of imagination and what it does for us and being able to imagine the future, um, our relationship with the past having to do with how we imagine our future to be, and that will create divergent theoretical orientations towards that past. I'll just say, I'll maybe say more about this later, that I think that we've got to be able to imagine the future and have some hope and faith 
in it. And it seems like that is what neoliberal capitalism has taken away from us. And I think this is becoming a recurring conversation, what to do at the end, at the end of the end of history, as it were. So I'll just throw it over to Melvin to ask what motivated you to start recovering this particular part of the uh, Black American political tradition, and um, how are you situating it within all of the other discussions, both academic and political in the public sphere, about race in America now? Great. Well, Lillian, thank you for having me. I want to thank all of you for having me. I should say, um, just very briefly, a remark about, about Charles Mills. Obviously, Charles Mills was an extraordinary contemporary philosopher reflecting on uh, race and inequality. And in many ways, his contributions are unmatched. But there's another side to, to, to Charles, uh, a bit of him that, that one does uh, is not supposed to know about. Uh, and that's the bit of Charles that worked in the shadows for a great many of us. So there are things that, you know, uh, as an academic, one is not supposed to know, right? So you're not supposed to know who's writing for you for tenure or who's writing for you for this or that position. Uh, but over the years, I came to to, to find out uh, who were my supporters. And consistently, Charles was one of my supporters. And so I'm very appreciative for that. Um, and he didn't have to. To, to be a supporter. And that is one of the extraordinary things about, about Charles Mills. So, um, so I'll, 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 stop, I'll stop there. So the book, I mean, one of the things about this book, uh, and here I'll speak at a sort of a very general level, one of the things that I wanted to understand was how do we make sense of a group of African-American intellectuals and activists and artists who clearly belonged to a class of persons that were excluded from the society and that suffered uh, and continue to suffer at the hands of domination. And yet African-American thinkers, activists, novelists, you know, artists, they committed themselves to trying to transform the American polity. Or to put it differently, how must they have understood democracy so as to justify their constant appeals to the nation? And what I try to do in the book is to tell a bit of that kind of historical philosophical story. And I try to lay out some of the sort of foundational elements of both their understanding of democracy and the method of appeal that helps us to make sense of how it is they kept on with the business of pushing and appealing to the nation in a variety of forms. And across the book, what I try to say, and there's a whole host of figures that populate this book, but at the sort of conceptual level, what I try to say is that if we pay attention to how African-American thinkers think about, for example, the language of the people, or we the people that is so central to American uh, moral and political discourse and practice. If we pay attention to that language, we'll see that the term both refers to uh, people who have rights and privileges of the Constitution, and it also is a concept that they've deployed uh, to mark out a people that isn't yet, that is not yet created, that can be, and that this, that this idea actually functions uh, as a crucial mechanism for legitimizing democracy, for pushing it along. And then it raises the question, okay, well, how do you then move the people on the ground to embrace this new vision of themselves that you might be offering, that African-Americans offered? And one of the things you quickly come to discover is the importance of rhetoric, that rhetoric is a fundamental feature for them of democratic practice. It is literally about moving people from one side to the other. Right? And what you immediately come to discover, okay, well, if rhetoric is a, is, is a method for doing this, what precisely, uh, what precisely will rhetoric try to attach itself to? What are the elements in us that it will try to grab hold of as part of moving us? And what you come to quickly discover is that the emotions or affect become, become quite central for these figures. And you know, they realize that, you know, as is often the case in a democratic society, is that insofar as you're appealing to those over whom you exercise no control, one possible answer, one possible response to your rhetorical appeal will be one possible response is no. I will not move with you to the other side. 
And because of that sort of inescapable constitutive uncertainty that attends democratic practice, these, these thinkers always find themselves committed to an idea of faith. Faith understood as a kind of running ahead of the evidence that you need to finally justify the appeal that you're making to that you're making to your fellows, and that these uh, these features are quite central at this kind of formal level, you might say, are quite central to how they want to uh, think about think about democracy, and they're quite crucial to how they sort of advance their appeals to the nation in their quest for racial justice. Yeah, that's great. So um, I, I'm I'm going to jump in and you know, talk about one of the one of the many things I found so exhilarating reading your introduction. So I just want to like as a statement say something I found really exhilarating, especially when you start to talk about Baldwin, is you know I'm always of two minds when talking about the role of emotions in the polity. Like you know, when I want to like you know, understand the power of James Baldwin, the thinker. Sometimes I think I risk making him overly sort of um, rationalistic, you know, as if like, you know, he's simply trying to like, here are your, the steps of the argument, and this is why you should be committed to equality. But of course, anyone who reads his writings knows that this is someone who wants you to feel in your guts, you know, what is going wrong here. That his, you know, language of, you know, fear, his language of hate, of love, they're not just adornments to his argument. They are participating in the broader tradition of understanding the importance of sentiment for shaping character. Ida B. Wells talks about the importance of sentiment, so I'd love to talk more about sentiment, but the question I'd like to ask you is, why do you think that these figures, and you, you're right, you, you select certain figures, but you know, could you like say a little bit to our audience of what's kind of you know, fascinating or astounding of these African-Americans basically fighting for a better version of America. One might expect after generations, why not just say, the book is closed, there's nothing we can do, we're leaving. And obviously those debates exist, but I think it's actually, it's worth explaining what it means for those who have been dispossessed by a country to want to fight for its better nature, for its better character. And I'm wondering, do you have like a, a story to, to tell of why they would do this in, in the first place? Right. I mean, I, I think from uh, David Walker, the sort of 19th century figure that I begin with, down to James Baldwin and everyone in between, you know, the basic answer is that they claim the United States as also theirs, full stop, and that they see the meaning of what the nation is and what it can become as something over which to fight. And it seems to me that that, that is the sort of the sort of straightforward uh, answer here. And, and of course, there's there's a kind of drama to that, right? So black people have sacrificed their lives, blood has been shed, right? Uh, lives have been lost, right? So that's the sort of dramatic character of this point. But the basic point is that they claim this as partly theirs, and to that extent, they are not willing to concede ground on the claim that sort of practices of domination, the sort of idea of, of white supremacy, which is basically valuing white lives over uh, non-white lives, they, they sort of refuse to allow that to fully colonize and define how to understand the moral and political life of the United States. And so they fight. Yeah, one question I had, I mean, so like, I think this is a very closely related to what you were just talking about. You presented in the introduction as a lesson learned from Frederick Douglass that the influence of the past isn't something that one can be done with once and for all, right? And that there's this question of how in relating to the present and toward, geared towards possible futures, like there's there are different ways of relating to the past and the legacies of the past. And in this case, obviously, specifically, those legacies of white supremacist domination and, and the afterlives of slavery. And you suggest that there's like a mode of relating to the past that takes the form of like a disavowal, which more or less allows it to recur or repeat or for where lessons can't have been learned. But then you suggest also that there's some kind of more responsible way of relating to this past, one that's accountable in some way. And then you, you suggest actually that like maybe Baldwin articulates this most forcefully. I don't know if I don't know if best, but maybe most forcefully. So can you say a little more about 
what you understand by a responsible or accountable relationship to the past in this sense? Right. So, uh, so this is a great question. One of the things that emerges over the course of the book is that you come back or we come back, uh, I come back again and again to African-American thinkers trying to get their readers to be attentive to the harms that the nation has committed against Black people and that persists in the present. You see it in David Walker, you see it in Maria Stewart, you see it in Anna Julia Cooper, um, you see it in Ida B. Wells, most certainly. You see it in, uh, in Du Bois. Indeed, one might say that W.B. Du Bois's 1903 extraordinary text, The Souls of Black Folk, is structured to move you through the horror of that past as part of a kind of therapeutic exercise of transformation. But ultimately, I ultimately I want to say is that, that this desire to get us to be responsive to the past is really crystallized in Baldwin. In other words, James Baldwin makes it the centerpiece of his kind of critical analysis and engagement with the United States. And that for, for, for Baldwin and, and indeed for others, that a kind of responsible a kind of responsible way of engaging uh, engaging the past is really trying to think about how one's activities in the present bear the trace of that past and how the standing of black people, right, is bound up with one's willingness to address that 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 sort of persistence, right? Um, and this, of course, sits in contrast. I try to say in the final chapter, it sits in contrast to different ways of trying to articulate an affirmative picture of a just society. So I, would, I, I don't want to claim, for example, that in the 1940s, when you have someone like uh, Gunnar Myrdal's American Dilemma, the sort of Swedish scholar who's brought over in a kind of Tocquevillian way to do an analysis of race in America. I would I would not want to say that Gunnar Myrdal in the 40s is not interested in a racially just society. I would not want to say, for example, that mm-hmm. let's say John Rawls of the 1970s, who offers a theory of justice, is not interested in a racially just society. But what I want, what I would want to say, is that the approaches that they take in the 40s and then the 70s, and it's quite nice that these are bookends um, for the all great civil rights movement, looks radically different from the activism and writings, for example, of Martin Luther King or uh, James Baldwin, right, or the activism of Ella Baker. All of them, or even the much younger at the time, the sort of younger uh, Toni Morrison, who would make that in some ways the centerpiece of her novels, um, that is to say, attentiveness to the past. And so all of them think that to sort of forge a, a sort of affirmative vision of a racially just society, you have to travel through the tragedy of the past and travel through it in such a way that it is neither anomalous to what America is Mm. about, nor does it need to be the sort of fundamental core of what America is about. But traveling through that past means that you can't sort of sort of set about creating a theory of justice from this sort of imagined location that that never was. Right. Um, So so this is why Baldwin becomes so important at the at the end. Yeah, I mean, picking up on that, I'm struck by the way that you navigate the kind of poles of optimism and pessimism as you work with this uh, with this thread of the African-American tradition, because it seems to me that what I think strikes you about the thinkers you engage with is that they're kind of neither disavowing nor kind of being trapped by or mired in the past uh, entirely. And so you start with a, a bit of an engage, a polemical engagement uh, with Afro-pessimism, uh, which I think you describe as kind of working with a meta-historical framework and a kind of or kind of meta-historical determinism. And so I, I was kind of curious just how, maybe just to have you say a little bit more about how you see this kind of methodological approach of not being mired in the past entirely, nor being in a, in a kind of deterministic way, nor being triumphalist uh, about the kinds of accomplishments or the direction of, of progress. Right. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because this sort of theme of Afro-pessimism came to this project late. That is to say, 
it found its place in this project as the book is coming to its end. Um, but because so many are really taken by Afro-pessimism, and I should say in some ways, why not? When you have a sort of tradition of thinking, it's a long one, but when you have a tradition of thinking that wants to sort of center Black pain and the tragedy of Black life in the United States and in the West more broadly, and use that as the basis for thinking, if we take ourselves to be preoccupied as scholars, uh, Black, whatever you might be, um, preoccupied with justice, why would you not be drawn in and pay careful attention to Afro-pessimism? And there is value there. But, you know, but ultimately, I think, to just put it quite uh, sort of plainly, Black folks have to get on about the business of living. Yes. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. (laughs) I'm sorry, yes. Black folks have to get on about the business of living. They have to get on with the business about trying to forge, as best they can, conditions of justice, of freedom and equal uh, standing for them to flourish as they conceive of that. And that it seems to me that ultimately, ultimately, as much as I am actually sympathetic to Afro-pessimism, ultimately, it turns out to be a dead end in this regard, even though there are some important pieces to it. There's a way in which it shines a light in critical ways. But ultimately, like all, all theories, they ultimately meet their limitations. And that's fine, because all theories are meant to enable us to live, to understand the complexity of our environment, and to respond to it in a way that, once again, can reflexively reaffirm us moving forward and trying to secure, at least in the case of African Americans, Black people, secure in a just society. And so there's that on the one hand. And then, of course, there is the seduction of, uh, you know, the, the seductive myths that we in the United States tell ourselves about ourselves, that we're special, that we're anointed, that, that progress is inevitable. Of course, scholars are on to this. Well, this doesn't make much sense. So there are a whole series of problems with it. But the fact <laughs> remains that it still forms a central feature of our moral and political discourse. It is mm-hmm. there. And it lends itself in its quest to realize a more just and perfect uh, America. It sometimes, actually, I suppose quite consistently, leads itself to disavowing the harms that it has enacted. It, it blinds itself to the fact that while progress may very well be a possibility, redemption is often denied to us. And so part of what my book tries to get us to do is to inhabit this middle space and to use this middle space between the pessimism on the one hand and triumphalism on the other, to use this middle space as a way to sort of, I think these are what what these thinkers were up to, to sort of sharpen, to improve our perceptual capacities. That is to say, our capacities to be responsive to our fellows so that we measure or we come to understand our progress not by redemption and we don't find mm. ourselves locked into a perpetual uh, a sort of perpetual failure but that we measure what we're doing by the skill that we display in our ongoing responsiveness to our fellows as that past creeps through again and again and again not always the same but again and again and again just a quick comment on that. Um, one of the ways that I liked how you present this, you know, this dichotomy that you're trying to avoid of the pessimism on the one hand and the optimism on the other, as you said, in the case of this sort of triumphalist narrative, there's like an inability to, to see or a, maybe a willingness to disavow the real harms done to black people in the United States by these institutional objects, by these structures, they're downplayed. But you point out too that on the other side, the Afro-pessimist perspective also needs to do its own form of disavowal or its own treatment of certain things as anomalous in the form of like whatever gains may have been won by, you know, any people of color, any black people anywhere needs in some way to be explained away as like illusory or temporary at best. And it just strikes me as being clearly clearly more adequate to try to develop a theory that doesn't need systematically to disavow features of social life uh, in America as we find it. So I just thought that that was really like helpful personally. 
and to lead off from that, because I think a big part of what was happening in your introduction is this focus on character. And I, I think all of us want to hear what you have to say say about this. So what I was hearing from what you were saying, and again, I'm I'm constantly locked in the Baldwin mode, but I'm hearing some, some Douglas as well, is that you do something interesting with character where it character isn't only individual. You say it can definitely be scaled up to talk about the moral character of a nation or culture. And so I'm wondering, like, this navigating the poles between, you know, optimism and pessimism, what you get with Baldwin, what he's trying to conjoin his reader to do is to develop the type of character that has the capacity to neither disavow history as if one must develop an amnesia, but also there is a sort of, to use maybe not the best, there's a sort of um, a moralistic language of a failing of character to be indefatigably connected to the past, as if the past cannot be transformed. And so you're trying to talk about a, a type of character in which our ability and capacity to respond remains dynamic, remains elastic, without the dream of being able to cut ties with the past, but is able to, the way I haven't written my notes, to carry yet transform it. And so I was wondering if you could say a bit more about this relationship between not just individual character, but character scaled up as a type of the, the virtues we ought to have as citizenry in relation to our history. And I think in the United States, the relationship to our history is really, really difficult. There is, you know, like you described, the disavowal or, you know, being kind of like stuck in it. And this seems to me a question of character, our capacities to respond. Right. So, you know, one of the things that I have struggled with in this book is actually less about the sort of interior movement of the book and more about its relationship to the intellectual currents around it. So this is not a book where you get a sort of extended uh, historical philosophical meditation on analysis critique on political institutions um, and the sort of infrastructure of our sort of judicial uh, state. This is not a book where you will get a similar kind of critical uh, meditation, for example, on capitalism and its interactions between right, its interactions with white supremacy uh, and uh, its workings on the life chances of, of black people. Those studies have their, their place. They are quite important. I understand why the currents these days are focusing on them. This book my book is fundamentally about the kind of posture or orientation that these thinkers were trying to cultivate as a precondition for deepening, extending, realizing democracy. That is to say, as a precondition for actually grappling with all of those thematics I just mentioned. That is to say, the sort of institutional form of racism, the interaction between racism and capitalism. Right? What must our sensibility and postures uh, be such that we can grapple and manage uh, those things. And so one of the threads in, in the book is that these figures are not interested in talking about character at the level or exclusively at the level of individuals. In fact, this is the, the way of talking about a character that makes it so deeply problematic, especially when you think that the nature of the problem that one is dealing with, something like white supremacy, has so thoroughly filtered throughout our culture. Then what does it mean to talk about character at the level of the individual? And so many of these thinkers want to talk about character at the level of the nation. And the way in which the nation's sensibilities, dispositions shape the members that comprise the polity. And that part of what these thinkers are interested in doing is trying to get their fellows not merely to be disappointed or outraged by a harm that has been committed by some entity which they, let's say the nation, that they have some loose connection to, but that to see those harms as actually an expression of who they are as a member of the polity. So that when the nation commits the harm against Black people, the harm is done in, in your name because you're a member of the polity. And in bearing your mark, right, 
it reflects or it's meant to reflect the tendencies in the culture that you yourself are complicit in. And so what Baldwin is after, I think, in his work is an attempt to get us to be outraged by just this by just this picture of ourselves and to see what is on display by the nation as emblematic of a morally impoverished character as measured of course right by democracy's commitment to freedom and equal regard and of course you know i mean you all know i mean you read this stuff you'll know that this kind of approach it does not capture the drift of the scholarship. Uh, this is not the direction of the scholarship, right? Uh, character talk these days is sort of looked on, frowned upon by those who are standard Rawlsian liberals and, and those who would be robust critics of racial capitalism and thus robust defenders of a kind of black radical political thought. Those two would interestingly agree, oh, this character stuff, nah, I can't mess with it. I can't mess with them. And yet, and yet, whether it is in the liberal tradition that deploys African Americans as mere case studies, or whether it is in the black radical tradition which sees black people as the site of substantive intellectual insight, many of the figures that they would want to deploy, right, it seems to me we're very much committed to trying to challenge the characterological basis of the United States that is just simply inescapable um, mm-hmm. in reading Baldwin, in reading Ida B. Wells, right? In reading King, obviously, in reading David Walker, it, in reading Martin Delaney, it is just simply inescapable. Martin Delaney, the great, and I'll stop on this point, uh, you've got me going on this, but Martin Delaney, the great, mm-hmm. right? Black national, I mean, what is his critique if not the critique of, I don't think the character of the nation is susceptible to being transformed. Therefore, we should get up and go. <laughs> yep. Time to get out of here. <laughs> Pack your bags. Right. Douglas like, wait, wait. I, I don't know if that's right. Uh, I, think, I think there's some resources here. But, but what are they talking about? Douglas and Delaney stand within the same characterological horizon as, right, as the target to which their analysis is directed. They disagree on what they finally want to say. Um, about the character of the nation. So I love the character stuff. And the reason this um, is attractive to me, I think, and it has been for a little a little while, I'm not sure since when, but at some point it, it hit me that there has simply got to be a better way of thinking about relating to one another. Like, um, like politically and intersubjectively, not necessarily like always as friends, but like as citizens, as people trying to organize things, you know, and I, I have a lot of experience, like, you know, on the, the, the small subculture that is the American left and little political groups and things. And I can't tell you how many times people have tried to have a political conversation, but then it quickly becomes clear. No one knows how to have a political conversation. We're not like, we're not equipped to like, have discussion like our character is not well suited like everything is we're we're full full of fear we are not used to thinking in political ways and things become very intersubjective very quickly and it's kind of a vague thought but I just started thinking like what is it about the society currently that like is shaping our character in such a way that it is so difficult to have like a productive conversation and there's I think there's a, a lot you can say about what is going on in the in the society but it started making me think like what do I have to do what do I and other people have to do I'm not necessarily doing it but what needs to go on to get people into a situation where they're able like you said to move from one side to another whether it's to change positions but actually just to be willing to partake in a project to focus on something to see the problem as it exists and to kind of have a sort of discipline which i believe in the republican tradition is often called virtue to be able like to be disposed to be able to carry out a task and you know i I think about things like when the students in tennessee were like organizing the freedom rides down to the to the south and you know they're having these debates should we go should we not go there's all these stakes and they have this culture of of debate and i think this is something we talk about on this podcast kind of frequently but like that's a that's a character that's a disposition you've set things up so that people are disposed to they're able there's a predictive quality as you said to the the relationships people are able to move with some 
momentum towards a common goal. And I think that it's true that like liberals, like Rawlsian liberals, like kind of classical liberals and people on the radical left, whether it's the black radical tradition or the anarchist tradition or like a radical socialist, whatever you want to call it. I think there's like mutual suspicion about talking about whether or not we are putting ourselves in a position to be able to realize our capacities effectively together. Um, And it has to do with not being, this is just my whole spiel, I think it has to do with not being able to imagine the future. Like we can't imagine where we're going. And so I loved that you brought that up about the kind of the role of imagination and faith. So I think I said too much. You know, the one thing I would say here, so I, you know, in the book, at least in the the sort of portions that deal with the sort of uh, 19th century running from 1830s to the 1850s, there's some discussion of the Negro Convention movement. There's some discussion of, you know, the emerging, uh, the emerging African-American uh, newspapers and periodicals. Um, and then toward the end of the book, there's sort of, there's discussions of the NAACP as it was trying to deal with the persistence of lynching and trying to get a, an anti-lynching law uh, passed. And then, of course, in the end, the civil rights movement comes up. But the book, of course, is not principally organized around uh, social movements. Having said that, I think one, one of the things that's interesting about social movements in the United States is this kind of buildup internal to those movements of trust as a sort of fundamental element in uh, in organizing and engaging one's uh, fellows. This most certainly was central to civil rights, Black power. It's inescapable. We see it now, of course, in uh, Black Lives Matter. And one has to cultivate, I mean, most certainly Ella Baker was trying it, right, was after this. One has to cultivate a set of excellences, right? And that really is what character and virtue talk is. Virtue talk is about a set of excellences that are directed to the realization of a set of goals. So a set of excellences, cultivating a set of excellences to realize a movement-based politics. And of course, she was very much concerned about having this cultivated uh, among those who most immediately experienced the harm as a feature of what it means to actually be self-governing, what it means to be able to perform direction over your life in some of the most important matters that otherwise seem to be uh, beyond you and settled by uh, and settled by other uh, by other figures. And so, you know, where am I going with uh, with this point? It just seems to me absolutely impossible to reflect on or to think about our political and legal institutions and think that those institutions can survive or can fall independent of the virtues and habits of those that participate in the society that we're discussing in this case, the United States. The transformation, the movement, and the destruction of institutions, legal or otherwise, is fundamentally dependent on a set of capacities that people need to cultivate. And to the extent that new institutions are built, we we have to raise the question, do they survive on their own inertia? Or are they finally not bound up in a kind of uh, relationship of reflexivity? And if they're bound up in a relationship of reflexivity, then you better be sure that you, you should have something to say about the requisite habits for sustaining it. Because in the, mm-hmm. absence, of ha- uh, in the absence of saying something about that, right, you, you'll find yourself wondering why the norms of the institution can't survive mm-hmm. on their own, right? Well, because you don't have people around the, to support them. Now, I'm, I'm going to be very honest with, with, with listeners here. In my book, I lean heavily on the side of character talk, on the side of virtue talk. But I only do that in some way to dramatize and to, in some sense, resist, I think, how far we have moved in the other direction. But, but in truth, right, in truth, once you finish the book, I would not be upset with you if you said, okay, this is good, but I would now really like a similar kind of reflection focused more narrowly on legal uh, institutions, political economy. You would be right to ask for that. But I think these two things can go together. Yeah, this is, this is really helpful in light of like current discourse around the kind of collapse of democratic institutions in the U.S., right? And there's a lot of 
Um, you know, we see the voting rights bills, quote unquote, right, that are being passed in a lot of red states. And there's, I think, a lot of alarm, most of it, I think, pretty justified around the around the damage that's being done to to democracy as a set of political institutions. So I think it's really helpful that you make this distinction between like political democracy and then democracy as an ethos, because much of what that allows us to do, I think, is to understand better that the collapse we're seeing at the level of the institutional democracy or voting and electoral rights is actually moored in maybe a kind of deeper problem that needs to be diagnosed with the collapse of democracy as an ethos, you know, at the level of habit, character, culture, and values. And so I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's really helpful. And I need to think about that for a while. But then the question that emerges is, well, you know, if the problem is just one of political democracy, well, then maybe, you know, we just need to fight to get better electoral laws in place or something, right? Like it, it, I can imagine, going back to imagination, it's easier for me to imagine like what pushing back against that collapse of electoral democracy looks like. I, I guess I wanted to ask like what, if, to maybe to say a little bit more about what imagining, what kind of agency there is or how it is that you struggle at that level of culture against the collapse of democracy as an ethos, or maybe, maybe not collapse because I'm not sure when America had a super robust democratic ethos, right? But, but how, it, I guess, I don't know, how it is that it can be cultivated, how it is possible to enrich that kind of ethical substrate of the collapse of political democracy. Right. So I think that, you know, all of these thinkers I sort of place under the, the sort of broad heading of perfectionism, which is sort of a way of seeing self and society as sort of susceptible to uh, improvement. And I try not to allow that term, uh, my deployment of it, to be weighed down by uh, a very robust uh, literary and philosophical conversation around perfectionism and its meaning because mm -hmm. you got to get on about the business of focusing on these thinkers rather than dealing with that. But what, but what's central to that tradition is that we are what we practice. And to say that we are what we, what we practice is both to say that the frequency with which we practice it uh, can make the ability to transform us, right, to cultivate new habits, very challenging, but not impossible, we, right? We construct new practices. And so, and so in some ways, the response here is about what are those practices that enable us to sort of perform democratic, democratic sensibilities, right? Um, and this is a discussion that's very central to the tradition of democratic uh, theorizing and, uh, and philosophizing. From the perspective of these thinkers, the ones that I'm interested in in this book, they believed that practices of reading and listening were actually quite important to uh, becoming alive to the claims of your fellows. And that the approach to, to laying out a story in which you implot the reader, the listener, so that they can see the sort of the sort of typography of the landscape, so that they can feel the sort of the sort of texture of of the pain that is on display is quite central. I mean, this is why when you think about the tradition of the African American, he I'll focus narrowly African American political thought. You know, if you were thinking about uh, approaches that are taken. Clearly, the novel, the, the poem, ranks much mm. higher than the form of the treatise. And, and, and that is part of, right, that, that is because the, the, the method must be consonant with the kind of transformation that you're trying to bring about. And it must be consonant with the gravity, with the experience in the gravity of the issue that you mean to describe Right, so this is why the narrative becomes this is why the narrative becomes so important in the tradition. But I think to move away from that and to come back to your original question, I mean, I think that we just have to continue to think about what are those practices that help us to perform, to sharpen democratic uh, democratic sensibilities. And I must say, those practices are not primarily housed at the highest level of political life, and they most certainly are not located within the more formal way of talking about democratic uh, uh, politics. And I say that, and I say that just to be quite clear, there are some things that are central to democratic 
uh, politics, that, that, that if you compromise that, you just compromise the entire process. The first thing, of course, is voting. Right? So I say all of this yeah. knowing that the first inescapable feature of democratic life is the ability to vote. The next move, of course, yeah. is all of these background things that we want to consider. Well, with what skill are you voting, right? Um, yeah. Right? With what skill, right? But that's another thing. But, but I must be able to do it. It has to be there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Without that, what, right? So I like quite a bit the way that you discussed this relationship between democracy and faith, where it's not like faith in the outcome that we mean, but something like faith being like a condition for something like democracy at all, right? In as much as it is something like collective activity or decision-making political organization in common in an uncertain context as an ineliminable characteristic of it. So on the one hand, we have this relationship between democracy and faith, but then you also are very, very clear that there's two features of this what you were just describing, democratic, maybe democratic sensibility, or this democratic ethos, um, where one is a commitment to something like freedom, and the other is something like a commitment to equal regard. So I was wondering if you could help me unpack a little bit, in what sense freedom here, what do you mean specifically by freedom, and, and what do you mean by equal regard in this, in this context? Right, so the question is, what is the content of this thing that we're calling democracy? What are uh, the sort of internal animating normative commitments that define what it means to take up democracy? And so the first bit of this, I say, is a commitment to freedom. But, but freedom understood as that to be free is really not to be at the arbitrary mercy of your fellows. Because to be, and this of course is central to the Republican tradition, the tradition, the tradition that goes all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans, but to be free means that you do not feel yourself to be under the thumb of another. Or that when you act, you're not worried that you must act with the silent permission of another. But what ultimately makes that freedom possible is not merely the sort of uh, a private exercise of your will without social and cultural supports. And those social and cultural supports mean that you have to be regarded in a certain way by the community to which you belong, such that you lay claim to those cultural, social, economic, political supports, right? And here is where equal regard enters the picture, right? So that to regard someone is to show care and concern for them. And that if, as I try to say, if we sort of modify it with equality, it means that the care and concern that you show them is not comparatively diminished in relation to uh, others. And this is what allows us to say that equal regard is extended to our fellows, right? Um, and so then that means that sort of invidious distinctions, race, gender, all of those are a violation because all of those invidious distinctions create hierarchy and attach where you sit on the, the, the sort of ladder of social life, attach uh, value to where you sit, and that value then is translated into your moral and political standard. And so African-Americans, on the one hand, believe in a kind of freedom that takes place without the threat of, of arbitrary power, but they know that to really sustain this, to realize it, requires a community of support um, that regards you as, a, as an equal. And that's how these two things uh, come together for these figures. Yeah. So I, I want to jump in and say, you know, I'm talking to you and I'm sure everyone else feels this. It's like, you know, a real breath of fresh air because I hadn't thought about it until you said it, that your talk of character cuts against the drift of, of most scholarship right now. Because I'm going to be honest with you, when I was reading it, I loved it. But I was like, what is this resistance I'm feeling? 
<laughs> and the resistance is because my habit is we need to talk about using abstract language, structural forces. And but I also realized the resistance was like you awaken this kind of like you know, disappointment I've been feeling when talking to people who do that work as as if the transition to a more just society, we will just automatically be the type of people we need to be in order to do that. <laughs> as if like that would just work itself out. And I'll, and so in my head, I'm like, have you met people? Like, you know, like it's going to be people living together. And you know, something, um, you know, something that Frederick Douglass did that, you know, I think really exemplifies this because you're also talking about what is the type of character we would need to make the transition from a less just society to a more just society. And I'm sorry, one of the most stark transitions we have seen in American history is a transition from plantation slavery to nominal democracy. These people had to live together afterwards. And so there, there's a, a story of Douglas going to visit one of his former slave masters who was on his deathbed after the end of slavery. People got so mad at him. How could you do this? How could you talk to him as if he's a human being and Douglas says and and I love that you're unearthing this he goes his character was a product of the time and place he found himself in and what's implied is we are no longer in that time and place and the type of character we need for our new moment is not the character of revenge is not the character of you know someone who is slavishly you know attached to the past and my god when the the what capacity you would have to have to go visit your former slave master, knowing that a new democracy requires the type of character in which you can engage your fellows, even with that very raw past. Where do you see that now? Like, where do you see that now? And so, you know, what I want to ask you, sorry, I'm like really animated because this is like important because we're talking about what does it mean to transition to a nation we do not have, we have not yet seen. And you know that I do, everyone knows I do this work on Utopian. I love how you kept using the language of not yet. Someday I'll convince my podcast people to do an episode on Ernst Block. But what type of character do you need in order to dispose yourself to something that is not yet in existence? That, you know, will be open and responsive to that. And so, well, my, my question is, you know, is it like also a part of what this work is doing? It's like, what type of character capacities would we have to develop in order to be the type of people who could make a transition to a more just social structure, a more just culture, whatever name you want to put in that placeholder? So one of the things that I would, I would say about this, and this mostly uh, comes out in chapter eight, the chapter on Baldwin, um, but you also see it in chapter seven, which is a, a chapter that focuses uh, on Du Bois. And I don't put it in these terms, but, but I think these terms are quite straightforward. We need to know, and then I'm going to qualify, we need to know how to die. And here's the qualification. The reference to death here is a reference to death in relation to our identities. We need to know how to let those identities die off. Because these identities, any identity, is really instrumental in relation to one's ability to flourish and to live with dignity, meaning, and purpose. And sometimes those identities get in the way of doing this, right? And sometimes our institutional structures work themselves up in trying to incentivize us to remain attached to identities that should pass away. You know, white supremacy is an identity. And there's a great many people at this very moment right now, as we are engaging each other, that are committed to trying to incentivize groups of people to remain committed to white supremacy, right? And its workings most certainly harm those who are non-white, but they also deform those who inhabit. And deform not simply in a sort of narrow, or, or let me say it differently, not simply in the way that, it's, that we might say, oh, it blocks us all from having relations with others. Yes, it's some of that. But it also makes you complicit in your own exploitation 
by a kind of economic practices, right, that rely on this cleavage to foment dissension between those who count themselves as white uh, and those who are non-white, right? Uh, that's sort of one of the insidious features of this. I mean, this is something, right, this is not new. I'm not saying anything novel. This is Du Bois speaking, right? I mean, this is one of the central features of Du Bois and one of the elements, I think, that's sort of central to the racial capitalism discourse. Um, but the habit of letting pieces of ourselves die is quite central to James Baldwin's reflections. It's it's what binds him, for example, uh, I think, to uh, someone like Du Bois uh, and Douglas and all three to, let's say, someone like Walt Whitman. Uh, you read Democratic Vistas, and Democratic Vistas is about how do we nurture a kind of agility in the service of a vision of, of equality and freedom that may require us, as Whitman would argue, that may require us to let pieces of ourselves go, to just let it fall away, fall away in the name of what we might call a kind of ethical responsiveness and an attempt to expand beyond the narrow narrow confines of, of who we take ourselves to be. Of course, someone like Whitman was trying to speak to the nation to get it to rightly inhabit uh, a democracy, and Whitman had all kinds of troubles, and, and those thinkers of the Harlem Renaissance that, that liked Whitman a great deal, and who seen him as a kind of harbinger of a democracy to come, well, they took the great bits of, of, of Whitman, and they wanted to leave the other bits of him. They let it die. <laughs> uh, emblematic of the very process, right, that he, yeah, yeah. Uh, that he himself was counseling. So, uh, so, I have yeah. one more question or, or thought, um, unless there's anyone else wants to jump in um i wanted to ask about maybe once more about american exceptionalism because it seems like and this is just my perception of things that american exceptionalism is something that has like a million renditions in american civic life there's the one that we've talked about already which is that this country has a special mission, um, which has justified all kinds of political projects. But then it, it seems to me also that there's a, a different kind of American exceptionalism that is the kind of the narrative of original sin and the need to atone without irredeemability. And this is kind of uniquely American. So I feel like American exceptionalism plays this kind of role in blocking us off from alternative possibilities, whether it's deployed by people who in the American political spectrum are liberal or more conservative. Because one of the hardest arguments to make in an American situation is, you know, it could it could actually be different. There are other institutions elsewhere in the world that are actually less barbaric. We have enormous amounts of wealth. We could do we could arrange this differently. You know, we could think about what's good for people. We could build more houses. We could, we could make them cheaply. We can, you know, give them to people at affordable. There's so many, there's actually like a, a wealth of possibilities. And what I find, and maybe this is just the brief experience I've had of living out of the country, is that we have a certain idea of our moral character and it has a lot of lives. And it seems to block us from thinking about our character as adaptable and as each other as persuadable. And there's institutional reasons for that, the two-party system or whatever, you know, there's not the, like the, the morals of it are, the, the institutional problems are, are constitutive, but I'm not sure if other people have, have noticed a similar, a similar thing. And what I notice about all of the authors that, Melvin, you were picking out in your introduction and that seemed to play such a large role in the book is that they all seem to fight against that. Like, they're not going to redeem the American myth of itself, but they're also not interested in re-exceptionalizing it. Like, it's, it's a civilization like other places, and it has limitations, it has a character, and we want to change. We want to change it, like full stop. And it can, and and I think that's part of what creates the complicated um, and the nuanced way of thinking about the relationship to the past, as you've you've described it today. Yeah, no, uh, uh, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the the sources of American exceptionalism are quite uh, complicated and varied, from Puritanism to individual figures, you know, Winthrop on one side, the Frenchman Tocqueville on the other, as contributing to 
how it is over time we have come to conceptualize, conceptualize what exceptionalism means. The sort of progressive era of the 1920s and the kind of metaphysics that often underwrote those engagements of the 1920s to Reagan's um, 1980s attempt to call us back to an original story about America. Um, it, so, so there are a number of different and complicated sources. The story of American exceptionalism matters in what I say in this book in terms of the kind of posture or orientation it cultivates in us in response to racial inequality and the past life of racial inequality and the, and the relationship of that past life to its present uh, iteration. And what I want to emphasize, or what I try to emphasize, is that the, that the particular brand of American exceptionalism has us always looking uh, to the future. And it has us always looking to the future in such a way that the elements that come to constitute it must either be wholly new or you only want to take up those bits that reflect the best of who you are. And what you're trying to do is to consolidate the impression of the best of who you are in the story of the future, which is why, right, which is why we so often in our language of American exceptionalism talk about falling from something that we were previously committed and trying to reconstitute it in the present moment in response to some particular problem we find ourselves dealing with. Or, or we sort of, uh, sort of say, well, because we're sovereign and because we're individuals that can remake the moment, then we'll remake the now. And we don't need anything from, uh, from the past. Now, I must say, to the intellectuals, all of whom right now I'm in conversation with, right? And those that are listening, right? We, we have to be very clear that there's a way in which scholarship has moved to disabuse us of this idea, but there's a way in which ordinary, everyday Americans getting on with life, telling themselves stories about what the nation is, and having those stories echoed by politicians uh, and uh, political activists, it, it, there's a way in which this story, this sort of, the story of American exceptionalism that I, I'm not fond of, uh, continues, to, continues to live, right? And so part of what uh, the thinkers in this book want to do is to say, this is not about redemption, and it can't be. The the deed is done, and it is irrevocable. And that even in our affirmative and constructive projects to respond to the past of racial inequality, even our positive and affirmative gestures, even the policies, only make sense because they bear the trace of that deed. And in the bearing of the trace... The bearing of the trace already sullies what we're doing. There is no redemption to be had. So the question then becomes, if there is no redemption to be had, how then do we get on about the business of trying to sort of quest after a more racially just society that realizes freedom, that realizes equal regard, knowing that there is disdain, right? And this comes back to the point that I, I mentioned earlier, well, what will be the measure of the progress is the skill with which you respond to this ongoing problem and the persistence of your response to it, mm -hmm. right? That's James Baldwin's lesson. That's Du Bois's lesson. That's Ida B. Wells's lesson to us. But that requires us to let go, to let go of absolution, our quest for absolution, our quest for redemption, and to disentangle our very practical, moral, and technological engagement with progress, to disentangle that from redemption. If we don't disentangle these two, we will constantly find ourselves in precisely what we're in the grips of now, the ascendancy of white supremacy calling for the recapture of a nation that has been betrayed, and actually having real conversations as if the questions that raise are really live, right? They should be live questions. 
for the debate, the questions central to, let's say, the rise of white supremacy is already to concede ground, right? This is why Frederick Douglass so long, long ago, I will not debate the issue of whether or not black people are human. Because they're already entertain it. And then the moment you say, well, we're not going to entertain it. Oh, you violate free speech. Should we not all be able to engage in free speech and use this as a mechanism to... The point, I cut off the point here. Listeners probably want me to finish the point. You should be able to finish the point. <laughs> okay, in the spirit of uh, finishing the point, I think that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you can also find more of Melvin Rogers' uh, writing and philosophizing on his brown.edu webpage. He has a list of all his publications, his CV, if you want to check out where you can read those. He also has articles that appear in major academic, um, sorry, as in popular venues, as well as major academic ones, such as Descent, The Atlantic, Public Seminar, and Boston Review. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash leftofphilosophy. Follow us on Twitter at leftofphil. And before closing out, I'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we are really grateful for your support. We're shouting out our patrons 20 at a time until we're caught up, starting with our earliest supporters. So today we would like to thank Sam Wilson, Michael Davin, David Gallagher, Garrett Russell Ming, Ricardo Silva Pereira, Laclan Woods, Alex Heffron, Leonard Dome, Catherine Campbell, Justin Chang, Kynan Kendall Murtog, Jordan Martin, Nathan Adams, Rachel Robottom, Hunberg, Garrett Larkin, Cruz, Daniel O'Brien, Michael Gorup, and Michael Wicks. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye, Thanks everybody. So much. Bye. Thank you, Melvin.